This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. When it comes to weight loss, no two people are the same. That's why Noom builds personalized plans based on your unique psychology and biology. Take Brittany. After years of unsustainable diets, Noom helped her lose 20 pounds and keep it off. I was definitely in a yo-yo cycle for years of just losing weight, gaining weight, and it was exhausting. And Stephanie. She's a former D1 athlete who knew she couldn't out-train her diet, and she lost 38 pounds. My relationship to food before Noom was never consistent. And Evan, he can't stand salads, but he still lost 50 pounds with Noom. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. Even through the pickiness, Noom taught me that building better habits builds a healthier lifestyle. I'm not doing this to get to a number. I'm doing this to feel better. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom users compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Slate's Working Podcast is brought to you by Braintree. Looking to set up payments for your business? Braintree gives your app or website a payment solution that accepts just about every payment method with one simple integration. Plus, we'll give you your first $50,000 in transactions fee-free. To learn more, visit braintreepayments.com working. And by The Message, a new podcast series from GE Podcast Theater. Hi, Nikki Tomlin here, and I'm the host of The Message. I'll be following a team of elite cryptographers as they decode a highly classified radio transmission. To sum it up, extraterrestrials. The message on iTunes. The following podcast contains explicit language. Welcome to Working, Slate's podcast about what people do all day. I'm Arun Vanagopal, host of WNYC's Micropolis series. On today's episode, we talk with somebody who's paid to keep people from hating each other, maybe even killing each other. What's your name and what do you do? My name is Elizabeth Clements and I am a mediator. And how long have you been mediating? I've officially been mediating professionally for 18 years, but about 20 years since I was trained. Okay, and so in addition to being a mediator, you're also a... Shaman. And what's that? A shaman is an indigenous energetic healing practice that I have also been doing for around 10 years. So shaman is something that, like, I guess people would never associate with 
where we are right now, which is Tribeca in this beautiful building, uh, you know, downtown Manhattan. But it's something that you do, you've done for a long time, and somehow integrate into your professional work, right? Right. They started very separately. I've been a mediator for a long time before a shaman kind of found me and said, you need to train, you need to learn how to heal people, because I could always see energy. And so when they realized that, they said, you have to train. And, and I thought, I already have a career in kids, and I can't do this. You know, it was sort of a secret side job for a long time, but people kept coming to me, and now I see about 150 shaman clients a year. And then somehow my mediation practice and my shaman practice have woven into one another in these funny ways. So. How did you get into conflict resolution, I guess is what it's called, right? Mediation. And, and I guess a lot of people might think, oh, mediation, arbitration, it's sort of like this murky feel, but I guess let's clear that distinction up first. Okay. So we, we say ADR, which is alternative dispute resolution, and that means anything but court. And so there's all kinds of alternative dispute resolutions. Mediation is one, arbitration is one, conciliation, negotiation. There's all kinds of alternatives to going to court when you have a conflict. So mediation is a practice where the mediator has no decision-making power, but they're there to, to facilitate a settlement or facilitate people becoming more clear about what's the path toward resolution. So the mediator is skilled in helping the parties realize what's most important to them and how can they walk forward through this conflict. That's what a mediator does. Arbitrator, very different. Arbitrator listens to the facts, applies the law, and makes a decision. The arbitrator is actually more like a judge, except it's an informal process where the parties can often represent themselves in arbitration. I mean, they can also have attorneys represent them. But arbitration is really an informal court proceeding in a certain kind of way. So it's a very different, but you're right, people mix up mediation and arbitration all the time. So w- with you, people are coming to you when they, they want things to work out, but things so far have not been working out. So sometimes people are sent to mediation, but in private practice, people come to mediation on their own. And so that it, it changes the quality of the mediation if the people feel like they're coming because they want to work it out, and then if they're being sent or they feel forced to go to mediation. That's a different, you know, it has a different energy to it, although, of course, mediation is applied in a similar way. What's the range? Like, you deal with all kinds of different sort of, like, clients, right? Right. So I have throughout my, throughout my career, I've worked with criminal cases, I've worked with civil cases, housing cases, family cases, community cases, neighbor disputes, estates. For people who don't want to go to couples therapy, they want something more concrete in terms of settling or figuring out a solution. I do marital mediation, I do divorce mediation. Tell me about how you got into this. I think it was like you were, what, a Peace Corps volunteer at some point in your life? Yeah, so in my early 20s, I was in the Peace Corps, and I worked in Costa Rica, or I was placed in Costa Rica, and I worked in a barrio where the police wouldn't go, taxi drivers wouldn't go. It was very da- considered a very dangerous barrio, and people just were sort of left to resolve their own disputes within the community, and they did. They, they had their own sort of form of alternative dispute resolution. So here we are in a society which is in the opposite extreme, some people might say, which is highly litigious, I guess. Everything goes to court. Is mediation sort of a way of saying, like, you know, that that has gone, like, you know, it's beyond the pale, I guess. It's like there's too many things to go to court and that the court system is not necessarily equipped to deal with smaller, relatively speaking, issues? Well, I think let's expand that conversation a little bit broader because conflict is fascinating. But what, what I see happens is that when we get into conflict, 
our fight or flight response turns on. You know, com there's a fear that arises. And when that happens and people get into their fight or flight mode, they're either going to run away from the conflict, and there's all kinds of ways people do that, or they're going to fight. And usually when they feel afraid, they're looking for a power outside of themselves or they become, you know, intimidating and a bully. And so one of the ways we bully is through the court system, and that has become an increasingly popular way to try and bully our way out of a conflict. I have a case that I just started this week, actually, where the one, I, I haven't met with them together because they're so angry and apart that they will not sit down at the table yet together. But I was speaking to one side and I sort of appreciated him. He was trying to tell me why, if he doesn't get everything he wants in the con, you know, in the resolution, that he will go to court. You know, I started to talk about the disadvantages of court. You know, your case is never black and white. It's expensive. It'll take two years. Uh, you know, sort of saying those things. And he's like, I don't care. I go, well, why do you want to go to court? He's like, I'm going to go to court for revenge. And I thought. Thank you for being so honest, because that's exactly what you're doing. I mean, that's exactly, he's like, I have more money, and I can crush him in a court battle, even if I'm wrong. I said, right, that's exactly right. Thank you for that sort of openness, because that's what's really happening. I mean, people often say to me, oh, it's the principle of the thing, or it's justice. It's not. It's revenge. You know, it's revenge. I appreciate why it's revenge, because he's in his fight or flight. He feels very betrayed and wronged. Our society is setting us up more and more to say, if someone's wronged us, then let's crush them in court. The court was not meant to be a place of intimidation and revenge. It was meant to be a place of conflict resolution and applying law and justice and like that. But it has become more and more just a channel for people to externalize their betrayals. And, you know, people who end up in wanting to go to mediation for their conflict resolution as opposed to going to court are a different kind of people. There are people of higher consciousness. You know, there are people who are, who are saying to themselves, I see myself going into my fight or flight and I don't want to resolve my conflict from there because I know what happens. You know, for example, we're talking about empathy, right? You, you emailed me about empathy and, and that's a very interesting topic to me because you can only have empathy if you get into your higher mind, if you get into your prefrontal cortex. The ability to, for me to step out of my own circumstance and my own life and my so own self-absorption, right? Stand in your shoes and wonder, what does it feel like to be you in this circumstance? That takes a higher mind. That, I mean, I literally mean your physical brain. You have to have your consciousness in a different place than your reptilian brain, your fight or flight, right? To even do that. But if you're capable of that and you can resolve your conflict from that place, that's going to be a very different resolution than if I'm in my reptilian brain trying to resolve my conflict by bullying you through the court system or any other way of bullying you, which there's many, right? And so it's a, it's a tricky thing to be able to do because in conflict, we immediately go into our survivor mode, into our protective self, and then we want to crush the other person. Like everyone wants that when they get into the reptilian mind. They want to, they want to win. They want to be safe. Ultimately, they're afraid and they're trying to keep themselves safe. You brought up empathy, which we, uh, we've had this exchange about. And it's interesting because, like, I keep on seeing this figure thrown around in serious places. The Times had an article by Sherry Turkle, I think, recently about, like, you know, uh, how technology seems to be um, making people 
less empathic, that there's a 40% decline measured in studies, actual proper peer-reviewed studies amongst college students in the last 15 or 20 years. And I'm wondering, is this something that you're seeing that people are having are more likely to, you know, to have conflicts because they just can't relate to how the other person is feeling? Yeah, I mean, I don't know about the studies. I can't quote studies, right? But I have, I do feel that the world is changing in this strange way, which is I think people are becoming less empathetic and some people are becoming more empathetic. You know, that it, there's a great divide forming between people. I see people getting darker, you know, getting um, heavier, getting more afraid. And then when they start to manifest their life from fear, what ends up happening is they create conflict everywhere they go. Everything is seen as a you know, a battle as a war to be won, as as a fight over limited resources, you know, that they see the world through this distorted lens of deprivation. There isn't enough and I have to fight for what's mine. And so then you start to meet these people and I feel, you know, it could be my age, right? I started this at 25 and now I'm 45, but I feel as if I see more and more people where everywhere they go, they're just starting little conflicts. You walk into the yard at 234 where my kids go to school and you're, oh, look at that mom, she did that. Or look at that teacher, I can't believe she said that. Or, you know, you're going to start conflict. Online, yeah, I mean, yeah. social media, I'm constantly worried that I'm going to say something innocuous that's going to be perceived as misogynistic, homophobic, racist, you know, kind of that. like you're like, you. I feel like everybody is walking this very thin line when it comes to social discourse, you know, and I feel like there is a sense of embattlement, you know, what you're saying seems to be very true, I think. The other, I just want to say, because I don't want that to be the way I see the world. There is also the opposite happening, that you are seeing people breaking free of fear and going into their higher minds. I feel like, and again, it could just be my age, but I feel like I see far more people walking away from, you know, getting to the point where they're like, this is ridiculous. Like, I cannot live my life like this. And they're walking away and making very different choices. And those people are showing up in peacekeeping circles. Those people are coming to shaman. Those people are showing up in the meditation world. Those people are leaving their Wall Street jobs to spend more time with their kids. You know, those people are also growing in number, I think. So you think that the people who are coming to you as well, who are in these, you know, battles with other people or other businesses or whatever it is, their spouses, whatever, that this is sort of representing the shift in, in attitude that you're seeing? Yeah, so I see that, you know, mediation was nothing 20 years ago. I mean, people never went to mediation privately. Now you see people, there's tons of mediators, but there's also tons of clients. I mean, every, to me, every conflict could go to a mediator. And it should if the people can get into that place where they say, I actually want to work this out for the higher good. You know, I want to walk in and, and I want to concern myself with what the other person wants and concern myself with what I want. But that takes a different quality of consciousness in order to come in and resolve your conflict in that way. And so I do think there's been a deep, deep increase, you know, an expanded increase in people showing up to resolve their conflicts in that way. But I also think it dovetails perfectly with people trying to grow spiritually, people trying to, you know, become more self-aware, people who are trying to say what's really important, because I know it's not scrapping and scraping and fighting over resources. It's actually something bigger and more broad. This episode of Working is brought to you by Braintree, code for easy mobile payments. Maybe you're working on the next Uber, Airbnb, or GitHub. Then why not use the same simple payment solution that helped them become what they are today? Braintree makes mobile payments so fast, easy, and seamless, it's almost magical. Add it to your app with just a few lines of code, and you're instantly ready to accept Apple Pay, Android Pay, PayPal, Venmo, credit cards, even Bitcoin. 
And if some other way to pay comes along, we'll support that too. See fewer abandoned carts and more sales with Braintree's best-in-class mobile checkout experience. To check it out for yourself, visit braintreepayments.com slash working. So tell me how you integrate being a shaman with being a mediator. I mean, you talked about energy, that you've always been able to sort of pick up or register somebody's energy. I mean, how does that, is that sort of like a sense that you've always had, like you, you think it was just kind of like part of you, even from, you know, childhood? Definitely. Some people come into the world perceiving in that way, but all people are capable of perceiving in that way, and probably all people do. They're just you just culturally were not taught to think about it. And so if you think, you know when someone walks into a room and they have a lot of heavy energy in their system and they weigh a 1,000 pounds and everyone gets depressed and they're like, oh, I'm going to leave this party because that person, you maybe you're not even aware that it's because that person came in. But, you know, there are these people who have energy in their system that makes us want to move away from them. And in fact, there are people who have so much heavy energy in them that they're sucking light out of the world, right? They're sucking light out of other people. And everyone wants to protect themselves from those folks because they're too heavy. They haven't done the work to get that heavy energy out of their system. And so where they walk through the world, they're creating conflict, you know, whether it's directly creating conflict or just the sense that the heaviness of them. They're just kind of gloomy or always down and like, oh, this isn't working out. That's not working out. And you're like... You know, we're friends, but gosh, I know, I'm not sure how much time I want to spend around you. Right. right. I mean, you, you feel heavy when you're around them. They're complaining. They look through this lens of negativity, and they sort of see what's wrong everywhere they go. That's actually because they have heavy energy caught in their system, which could be taken out. It's not by nature that they're that way. We always say, oh, that person's just a complainer. It's not true. They actually are not that. They're a light being who could be light, but they aren't because they have so much heavy energy trapped in their system. That's what a shaman does. They take the heavy energy out of your system. I mean, it's an oversimplification, of course, but that's more or less what it sums up to be. Then there's other people, right, that walk into a party and the whole party lights up, right? Everyone feels like, oh, who's that? I want to be next to that person. Why is that? It's not because their personality or their character. It's because they don't have a lot of heavy energy in their system for whatever reason. And they're in a very light place. And, of course, we're not, you know, we ebb and flow through heaviness. We all have heaviness in our system, and there's more on the surface at times in our life, and there is less on the surface. We all go through dark periods. We're meant to. It's about our evolution. But as the heavy energy lodges in our system, we say, I don't want to live like this. I don't want to be this person. And so we start to look internally. We work it out of our system one way or another, whether it's with a shaman or having a coffee with your friend or, you know, there's all kinds of ways to work it out. And then we get lighter again. And that's part of how we evolve as a human being. How does that dovetail with mediation? It does very clearly. Like if two people come in and they're super heavy full of heavy energy, you know, they're going to struggle to get into their higher mind and try to work this out. So yesterday I was watching my students do a case where, you know, one of the parties was weighed a thousand pounds, but it it really, how do you get that heavy energy out of your system? It's through insight. It's through self-awareness. And so one of my mediators said to him, what would it be like, you know, he had a trust fund and he was 40 years old and he had been being controlled by his father for many, many, you know, his whole life probably, and still at 40 being controlled by his father, you know. And the mediator said something to him about what would it be like to step into full adulthood and not, not have to consider what your dad wanted you to do. And it was like, ding, this light went off, this heavy chunk of energy just like fell out of his system and his whole body changed. And he was like, what? 
wow, like I've never even thought about that. And you know, all of this lightness came to him just through that one moment of insight in the mediation. And of course it impacted the mediation considerably with his business partner who had been so frustrated that he could never make a decision on his own. And so, you know, that case will continue on and we'll see what happens. But, you know, through insight, we clear our field. And so, you know, to me, those things line up perfectly. Do you think you're better equipped to be able to like diffuse something than somebody who doesn't have the formal sort of training like it might be that obnoxious person you're encountering or a more serious sort of like a family squabble or whatever well i think that you know one of the things my shaman training has taught me is to feel very compassionate about what people are going through you know so when people come into my shaman room i hear you know the deepest darkest ugliest things that people have gone through and that's a lot and i see why that heavy energy got locked in their system it's from child sexual abuse or physical violence or, you know, domestic violence or, you know, neglect or, you know, inherited intergenerational trauma. You know, there's so many traumatic things that have happened in this world that can be passed down generations and generations. I think in particular in this country, because we have so many immigrants. And so why did they come here? You know, just the immigrant experience alone is so traumatic, you know, that it get, that gets passed down. And so it's not to say there isn't a lot of lightness and good things that have happened in people's lives. Of course, there are. But the trauma is what gets locked in their system. And so I think when I go into mediation, I think the tendency and what I try to teach my mediation students is that, you know, the tendency is to be like, why is that guy such an ass? You know, like, why is he acting like that? You know, and I'm like, because he has this heavy energy in his system and it got in there honestly. We all get it in there honestly. You know, that there's something that traumatized us. And so it locked in there. Now it pushes us into our fight or flight. And then we act like an ass in a conflict. You know, and everyone's like, I hate that person. They're so heavy. They're so negative. They're so this. They're fight, they, turn, they start a fight everywhere they go. And, and I feel like because of my shaman work, I know where it comes from, even if I don't know where it comes from, from that particular person. And so I feel a deep compassion for people as they struggle. You know, some people have this very, very upfront, difficult life, lodges a lot of heavy energy in their system, and it throws them into a place where they have a more extreme version of you know, darkness in their system that they have, they're not going to survive if they don't get it out in some way. And so they do, you know, some people act it out, but some people actually work it out of their system. And when it's out, it's replaced with compassion and, you know, an expanded consciousness and an ability to see others who are suffering in that way and feel for them. And so I do think sometimes people who have had extreme circumstances actually become the more enlightened people. You know, they also have the chance of becoming the darker people, right? The people that are really suffering and, you know, indulging in drugs and alcohol and acting out in all these ways because they're, they don't know what to do with all that heavy energy in their system. But, you know, people who have lived easier lives sometimes have less depth. And so... Yeah, I mean, we almost, I mean, you, you want your kid, obviously, if you're raising a child, you want them to, to clearly not have to suffer. At the same time, you don't want them to be so cloistered or whatever, that they that they can't empathize with somebody who, say, uh, has a harder life or whatever, right? You want them to have challenges in some ways. Well, actually, I think the, div- the, the ability to have empathy actually comes from having caregivers who have empathy. You know, that it's, an, it's a directly taught experience, that you only learn empathy by having someone be empathetic toward you. You know, somebody has a role model that for you. you can, you're not born, I don't know, maybe you are born that way, but I think that if you have the people around you putting themselves in your shoes and showing you how, 
and then wondering what's your experience. I mean, I tried, I, that's my main skill that I teach mediators. I'm trying to teach mediators empathy. So normally what we do, most people, all people, sit and listen to someone else's story and then they relate it to their own life and they pass judgment on it and they have an opinion about it and they think it's right or they think it's wrong or they think it's black or they think it's white. It's a yes, it's a no. You know, they're, they're doing what we call filtered listening. They're taking what you're saying and filtering it through my own experiences and rendering a judgment on it. You did the right thing, you know, or you did the wrong thing. That's not what mediators do. Mediators sit in your shoes and wonder at, at your subjective experience. So if you want to tell me that you want revenge and you're going to court because you were betrayed and, and I don't care, I'm going to crush him. And even though he has two new babies, I don't care. I want to crush him because it's revenge. The mediator doesn't say, well, that's not right. The mediator says, wow, you must be really angry to want to crush your former friend that way. You must, the betrayal must be so deep for you. What's, what's going on internally that he wants revenge that badly? And that's empathy. And so that is the primary skill that mediators employ. But that, that's a very difficult skill. And I do teach it. And I, want, and I, I insist the mediators do it. But, it, it. but for some, it comes easy. And for some, it's very hard. Hi, Nikki Tomlin here. And I'm the host of The Message. I'm going to take you into an elite cryptography think tank and check it out. Their top project right now is to decode a highly classified radio transmission from the 1940s. Have you listened to it yet? Not yet. Uh, We're having a discussion about that. But if I offered you the chance to listen to it right now... Um, Sounds like a no. Well, we don't really know what it is voices, music, breathing, but you know, I'm not going to mess with that thing. To sum it up, extraterrestrials. Subscribe to The Message on iTunes. So walk me through, I guess, a family situation or a couple conflict that you've dealt with and how you got them out of absolutely despising each other and thinking about whether splitting up or whatever it was and figuring it out. I was thinking about one case that I had a little while back where the the woman was pregnant and the male was caught deeply in fight or flight and bullying her and intimidating her. You know, it's very hard, especially as a mom, right, to sit and watch a man scream and yell at a really pregnant woman. You know, it's very difficult to see that. You know, my fight or flight will get triggered as the mediator and say, what kind of jerk would point at his own child in, a, in the belly and say such horrible things, right? You know, I realize, like, I have to catch myself first, right? It's an internal practice mediation. I have to catch myself in my fight or flight and say, this is not about me. Like, why is this man doing this? And I have to stop myself and get in his shoes. They say, wow, you must be hurting a lot to, to be saying such hurtful things. You know, and he's like, you don't understand, Elizabeth, what I've gone through. And then, you know, enumerated all the things he's gone through. And I say, yeah, I I can hear how difficult it's been for you and how hard it is and how scary it must be to feel like she's leaving you and you're not going to be around your baby and all that. And, you know, he started to cry and sort of shake. And the acknowledgement that what he was going through was really was really horrible. You know, that his baby's going to be born, not in his house. He's going to go to work every day and pay her to live elsewhere, you know, and not see, not have what he thought he would have with his child. And, 
you know, to step into my higher mind to trigger his. And then he apologized. You know, and he said, you know, I know I'm saying really hurtful and horrible things. And obviously I love the baby and I love you. I'm just, I'm just so upset about what's happening. This is how we resolve the conflict, right? Is to get him up and out of his angry, fearful, fight or flight, intimidating, bullying place. But it's through empathy that we do it. And so when you say, you know, I mean, you're stating statistics where empathy is declining. You know, people's capacity to resolve conflict is declining along with empathy. Because without it, we can't really get into the other person's shoes and then resolve the conflict in these higher, higher ways. You know, in the end, if we hadn't intervened with mediation in that case, they would have gone to litigation, you know, they would have gone to court, they would have gone through a, a horrible divorce proceeding that actually separated them more and more, you know, damaged their relationship further and further. And then who pays the price for that? Of course, that unborn child does. You know, I do think it's, it is concerning, you know, that we find empathy in the decline. So do you have, I guess, tips? Like, are there like three things that you would tell a couple that's fighting a lot that wants to avoid getting to this particular, you know, place where they're like going to a mediator or going to court? Are there certain things that you would say like, you know, these are things you have to be able to do in order to improve your relationship? Well, I think um, you have to do your own internal work. That would be the first thing. You know, that there's a, I think there's also an increase in codependency in the world. You know, that I'm not going to be okay if I don't control you and make you do exactly what I want you to do. And if you're not jumping through the hoops in the way that I want, you're not saying the things I want, you're not going to work or making money or cleaning the house or showing up in the way I want, then I'm unhappy. And so th- this is a form of codependency that my, I've decided that my happiness is dependent on my partner acting in a certain way, which is, this is not the way it works. You know, I, I read something that you sent me that said the, gener- the me, generation me or something, right? That there's this way in which we start to think of ourselves as, it's all about me. You know, it's all about how, how are you going to show up for me? And I think that what I'm trying to say is that it isn't that. You know, that we want to move away from this sense that I should be controlling and manipulating the people around me to show up for me in the way I want. You know, but that there's a different way of looking at it, which is to say that everyone around me is trying to do something for themselves. You know, that they're trying to, un, you know, that we have we have a life that we want to live, and there's resonance. You know, that there's things that excite each of us, and may, are, we're passionate about, or we want to learn. And the people around us should be in support of watching us do that. But instead, they're grabbing at us, trying to get us to do things for them. And so. If everyone is trying to manipulate everyone around them to do what I want so that I feel safe, so that I feel loved, so that I feel cared for, so that I feel better, then everyone's just trying to manipulate everyone else as opposed to I'm going to be in charge of myself and then I'll support you in your path, whatever it is, whatever you can unfold. I had a client came in yesterday with Sean McClain. And he, you know, he's a longtime Wall Streeter and he lost his job and whatever, is a series of, you know, things, how Wall Street started spitting people out at 08, and they've had trouble sort of coming back into the workforce. And so he spent his whole life with this idea that what a man is, make a lot of money, support the family. His identity is so tied up with making a lot of money. And that now that he isn't, and he can't, and it's hard to get back into the workforce, you know, he feel, his self-worth is so low. And I said, well, what, what do you love to do? He's like, I have no idea. As you have no idea what you love to do, what are you passionate about? What are your interests? What are your hobbies? Like, what lights you up? Nothing. There's nothing. There's just, I need money so that I can support my family. I said, it's such a 
perspective of deprivation, right? It's such a fear-based life that he's living because he's following along what he thinks he should be rather than ever discovered what he is, like what he wants to be, what's exciting for him. And it was so, you know, it's not an unusual occurrence. I've had that before. But to see a 50-year-old man and say, what do you love to do? Nothing. Like, I can't think of a single thing. Wow. You know, and it's sad. But it's it's partly because there's this, you know, this, this I mean, what, that article called Generation Me, which made me laugh. But, you know, it's, it's, I don't think it's just the 20-somethings. It's like all of us. We're starting to say, what have you done for me lately? Like, what are you doing to make my life better? And if everyone says that, what kind of society do we have? So, but in his case, he wasn't really thinking about what he liked to do or what he wanted, right? He was only trying, thinking about his family and providing for them. Is that right? Yeah, I mean, I think that, I think this happens particularly to men, right? But that they get into the world and they say, what's it mean to be a man? It means you make a lot of money, you have a wife, you have some kids, you have a car, or you have a house, you get a second house, you know, like that. And that that's not necessarily their natural unfolding of their life. It's just the cultural path that gets set up for them. And so somewhere along that path, they sort of wake up to how unhappy they are because they're walking the shoulds instead of the what could be, like what would be uniquely theirs. My niece and my nephew are both in their 20s live with me. And I think that that generation has really been pushed to do the shoulds. This is what you should do. You know, it's not about playing football because you love football. It's about becoming the captain so you can put on your resume so you can get into the college. You know, and so we're really teaching people to stop listening to, you know, what's the, what's the thing that they love? What do they enjoy in the moment? And just say, you should go, you know, volunteer at the nursing home, you know, so we can put on your resume. And you should become the debate captain so that we can put on your resume so you can get into college, you know. Or, or like, it feels like all of us are in some ways selling constantly to everybody else. Yeah, I agree. I do think that increases our inability to resolve conflict and be happy and sort of know who we are. And eventually you'll hit what shaman called the dark night of the soul. We all do. Maybe we don't all do, but a lot of us resist it. But you're meant to hit that point where you say, who am I? Like, who am I really? And if we're just distracting away from it, you know, it's not just so social media and the likes and that. It's also drugs and alcohol and sex and shopping. And we can distract now in ways that are just, you know, you could go your whole life and never stop and know yourself. Because you can binge watch TV. You can sit on the Internet for hours. If you have one second waiting for a friend on a corner, what do you do? You pull out your phone. Because God forbid you should just stand there, you know, and have an internal experience. It's like there's so many ways in which we can mood alter, like move away from what's happening internally and just, you know, tap into something to distract ourselves. At any moment we can distract ourselves. And, And then we've gotten so busy that there just isn't enough downtime to even wonder what's happening internally. And then eventually it'll tackle you to the ground with depression, anxiety, stress, illness. It will take you down eventually. But, but then there's a peop- then it's gone too far, right, like a pendulum. And there are people who have been like, no way. This is, this, i got to just give this whole thing up and go swing to the other side. And so you see more retreat centers and people going out into, you know, circles. And I, I feel like there is the, the backlash of it, too. And some of us will recover from that and come back into connection.
Thanks for listening to this episode of Working. We'd love to hear your thoughts about this podcast. You can email us at working at slate.com and dig through our first three seasons at slate.com slash working. This episode was produced by Jason DeLeon. Our senior producer is Mike Volo, and our executive producer is Andy Bowers. I'm Arun Vanagopal, and that's it for me as the guest host of Working. It's been a lot of fun. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.